from us uh, for whatever reasons they might they might be. Perhaps one of the biggest reasons is that people may want to rob us of other people's freedoms is to have some sort of control or some sort of influence or some sort of power over them. And that was certainly maybe the case here in the churches in the region of Galatia in which Paul was writing to, in which there were people who were still trying to, in some ways, preserve the experiences, the belief systems, the way in which they lived, and were trying to preserve that even at the cost of now once again compromising the gospel of Jesus Christ. In this case, requiring Gentiles who were not Jewish people to first become Jewish people before they could then become Christians. And so, by the way, that kind of pattern is nothing new. Nothing new. For a long time, mission work that was done by European nations uh, was done in a very certain way. When they would go into an area, let's say into tribal groups in the jungles or elsewhere, they would oftentimes discover that these individuals lived very different lives than their own lives. And so oftentimes, white European missionaries and otherwise would look at these tribal groups and would say, well, 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 wait a minute, you don't have any clothes on. That's a problem. You need to get dressed. And, and, and here's how we want to dress you. We want to dress you the way that we're dressed. Oh, oh wait a minute. Secondly, and so they get dressed that way. And secondly, wait a minute, you're not speaking the same language that we're speaking. So let, let's teach you our language. And then they would teach them their language. And they made sure that in the end they would look and talk and in many ways act like the missionaries that were there. And then after all of that was done, they would finally say, now you're ready to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Man, I'm certainly glad we have changed that. That when we go into areas in which people may not have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, we don't expect them to be like us. In fact, it's better that they're not. There's enough of us already. And the beauty of the body of Christ is the diversity in it. It is not about unanimity. It is about unity. And those are two very different things. And what I love about the gathering of God's people is you do not have to fit into a particular way in order to worship at a church. And any church who deems it that way is probably a church that has compromised the gospel because there are still, and, and we are guilty of it if we're not careful of it, just as much as any other church, that there are churches that maybe love the idea of saying in order for us to be able to fellowship with each other, we have to be like each other. And it's like in the way that we dress, like in the way that we talk, like in the way in the same Bible versions that we use, like in the same way that of the music that we were singing. In fact, I was just came across an article couple of weeks ago, again, kind of called the worship wars. And it's talking about how this one pastor made a statement talking about how modern worship music is terrible, that we ought to go back to the hymns because those were the musics of depth and meaning and unbelievable things. Right. And but, you know, the funny thing about the worship wars is one is this. We will never solve them. They will never be solved. And the other thing is, is that we as generations, have to have the freedom to express who God is and what He means to us in our own unique way. Thirdly, every worship song in some way 
was relevant and put into relevancy for the culture and it was made in. Let me give you an example. Martin Luther. Oh, Martin Luther. Here was a guy when he was freed from Christ, he was freed in Christ. The man went and married. He went and bowled even for crying out loud. Bowling. I mean, he was credited. I mean, look it up. It's crazy. I mean, the guy went all the way over. He was free in Christ and he wrote some hymns. One of them being a mighty fortress is our God. Great song, isn't it? A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Right? It's to a bar tune. A mighty fortress is our God. You ever think about that? That's the way it was. And when I look at these worship wars and how they're trying to, in many ways, exert influence, power, control over ways that which they think other Christians should worship, I think that is, again, in some ways, compromising the gospel. And by the way, let me just say this. Many of the songs we even sing, the modern day songs, if you listen carefully, they are straight scripture. I call it the karate kid effect. Right? I call it the karate kid effect. You know, Daniel's son, when he was learning karate and Mr. Miyagi, when he takes him out and he says, okay, first of all, you have to sand the floor. You know, you have to paint the fence. You have to wax the cars. All that kind of stuff. And by the, by the time he is done painting, you know, the house, and Mr. Miyagi's been off on a fishing excursion all day, Daniel has had it because he says, I'm not learning karate. And then, of course, you know that scene where Mr. Miyagi says, show me sand the floor. You know, all that kind of stuff. And he's being, you know, attitudinal all about it. And he does. But then finally, he discovers he's learning karate. And he didn't realize that the entire time that he was waxing the cars, sanding the floor, painting the fence, he was learning karate. Whether or not you realize it, the worship, many of the worship songs, not all of them, but many of the worship songs that you hear today, many of them are straight scripture. And you may not even realize it. Straight out of the Bible. How can that be wrong? How can that be wrong? So you know what my, my solution is to the whole worship war thing? It's not either or, it's both and. There is much richness to be gained from the past. And there is much that can be gained from the present. So let's marry the two. And let's stop this foolishness, this nonsense that if we don't have certain songs that we're singing, if we don't have certain instruments that are being done. By the way, you know, you want to talk about the organ. You know, our churches ought to have organs and play the music that way. By the way, there was a time when churches viewed music, any instrument in the church as being a heresy, including the organ. So, you know what, let's just stop. I look at these arguments and it's foolishness, just absolutely foolishness. One of my favorite memes, and yes, I call them memes, because they're not memes. I pronounce them phonetically, as they should be. Is little Yoda. You know little Yoda from the Mandalorian? I love that little guy. He's so cute. You know, and he's just drinking something, a drink. And it, the, the top of the meme is, is just being silent and watching the drama. And that's how sometimes I feel in this whole thing. There are things that in people that want to rob you and I of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the freedom we now have in it. And Paul's whole message to the churches in the region of Galatia, and I believe the message is still relevant for us today, is don't you dare let anyone rob you of that. You are free in Christ. So live in that freedom. 
You play for an audience of one. Don't you let anybody tell you and try to rob you of the freedom you now enjoy in Jesus Christ. If you want to listen to hymns, listen to hymns. God bless you. If you want to listen to praise songs, modern praise, God bless you. If you want to worship and you want to have the message paraphrase, God bless you. If you want to come to church and you don't want to wear a tie, you don't want to wear a coat, you just want to wear, you know, a polo shirt or whatever, I don't know, even maybe even a t-shirt, God bless you. Wear pants, please. Shorts, whatever. <laughs> sandals would be nice. Jesus did go, you know, at least had sandals. Um, it was good enough for him, it's good enough for us, right? Just kidding. Um, you know, that's the thing. Listen, worship Jesus. That's the point here. So today, we're turning the corner. We're turning the corner today as we have been looking at those things for the past several weeks that rob us of our freedom. We're going to look at, starting today, things that bring us freedom. That can bring us freedom. And one of the things that can, as we're going to see today, that can bring us freedom is the power of the promise. The power of the promise. Now, we'll get into what that promise is just a little bit. But what we're going to see today is that the Apostle Paul is now going to, as clearly as he can, try to put into perspective the law and the promise. And the two, as we're going to see, are not the same. So, as we go through this, there's a couple of things I want us to keep in mind as we go through this passage today. And hopefully we can learn that the way of freedom is the following. Not the only way, but a way. And it's this. The way of freedom does not come by thinking God's promises are the law. Let me say that again. The way of freedom does not come by thinking God's promises are the law. Now, we're going to be out of Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 29 today. And this is what the Apostle Paul writes. And he says the following. Brethren, I love that word. It's scriptural. Brethren, now let me just say this, just an FYI, um, the NASB, which I love and I preach from, came out with a new version finally in 2020. I have the new version. I ordered the Bible in January. I just got it this past week. Uh, it now changes brethren to brothers and sisters, which is an accurate translation in and of itself. But for right now, today, we're still reading from the 1995 version of the NASB. <laughs> brethren, can't help it. You're part of the Brethren Church. That's it. Um, I speak in terms of human relations. Okay, he's, he's talking now just on a human level. N never mind God and us. Now let's just talk about us, between us, relationships between us. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Paul is setting the stage here by saying, okay, there has been a covenant. When a covenant or an agreement is reached between you and I as humans, whatever that covenant is, maybe it's to buy a house, maybe it's to buy a car, maybe it's to repay a debt, maybe whatever that is, maybe if it's the terms of employment, whatever it might be, once those things are signed, you do not go back and add to it. You do not go back and alter it after it has been signed. After it has been signed, it is now ironclad. 
does not or should not change. Paul is setting that up. If that is how we as humans relate to each other, which is in many ways how we do that, he goes on and says this. Now, verse 16, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Really important, Paul says. Now, he does not say and to seeds as referring to many, but rather to one. And to your seed, that is Christ. What I am saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. What is Paul talking about here? You see, most likely what is going on here is that these Judaizers, and understandably so, had gotten a little mixed up in their thinking. They thought that the promises were the law. That the promises that God made to Abraham were the law. How and why would they think that way? Well, one big reason why is the nature in which that covenant, in many ways, was ratified, at least from their thinking. And that was... Abraham was to be circumcised and any of his descendants were to be circumcised. In other words, to them, that was the ratification of the covenant or the promises that God had made. And therefore, 430 years later after that was done, the Ten Commandments show up. And so for many of these Judaizers, they were perhaps thinking that the law was the fulfillment of the promises that God had made to Abraham. But Paul says, time out. Hold on a second. That is not the case. You see, the promises that God made to Abraham preceded any of that. It was not based on law. You remember the promises that God made to Abraham were simply this. Abraham, leave your country. Go to a land that I will show you. And by the way, I'm going to make you a great nation. And here is where the promise is. In addition to what he has just said. Here is the main crux of the promise. It's this. And I will bless you so that you will what? Be a blessing to many. Now, understandably so, that we would think, understandably, and no doubt that maybe these Judaizers are thinking the same thing, that the promises to Abraham was the land. Yes, that's part of it. But much more than that, much more than that, was the fact that Abraham and his descendants would be blessed so that they would be a blessing. Guess what? The whole point leading up to that is in Jesus Christ. It is not the land. It is not the area in which they would settle. It is not any of those things. It is the coming of Jesus Christ. It is not the law. It is not anything like that. It is Jesus Christ. So these Judaizers were getting a little confused from what Paul was saying. He says, guess what, guys? You have mistaken the laws as God's promises, when in fact that is not the case at all. Period. So it leads to verse 19. Paul asks this. Why the law then? If it's not there to fulfill the promises that God had promised to Abraham... It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. 
Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. But the scripture was shut up on everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. So why the law then? Well, Paul shares a couple of reasons. First of all, the law exposes sin. The law exposes the fact that we have sinned against God. How do we know this? We've broken his laws. By the way, the Ten Commandments of all the things that the law shares, and this is the second thing, the law shares what God's standard is. The law shares what God's will is. The law shares a little bit about who God is, the character of who he is. This is really important. If you ever want to know the character of, for instance, a country, look at their laws. If you want to look at a character of a family, look at their rules and standards that they have for their children and otherwise. In other words, the law shows us the fact that we have sinned, but it also shows us God's glorious standard and the fact that we have fallen far short of that standard. And it shows us the fact that we also now need a Savior because there's no way you and I could ever live up to that standard. Have you ever tried to live up to someone's standard and have been disappointed every single time because what you did was never good enough? Maybe it was a boss. And you worked so hard. You worked so, so hard. Maybe it was a parent. And you were trying so desperate to try to impress them, to say, Mom and Dad, please be proud of me. Can I just give a word to our parents here today? The most important thing I could, that you could possibly ever say to your child is, Son, daughter, I want you to know how proud I am of you. You never need to impress me. I love you unconditionally, and I am proud of you. Particularly sons need to hear that from their fathers. It's called the elusive blessing. If you take a look at Abraham and starting there and the fact that he missed, you know, Isaac and, and Ishmael and how that was missed out. Ishmael missed out on that blessing. And then from there, from Jacob and Esau, and then from there to Joseph. I mean, it's just, it's called the elusive blessing. Dad's. Tell your sons you are proud of them. They need to hear it. At any age. At any age. The most important thing I think a son could hear is from their father. Son, I'm proud of you. I'm really proud of you. And if you're a son here and your father is no longer around, I want you to know that your father in heaven is proud of you. Your father in heaven is proud of you. You never need to impress your father. Now, in addition to sharing God's standard, his will, and exposing sin, and not only that, the purpose of the law was to help guide us until Jesus could come. It was to help keep sin in check until Jesus came, whom all of the promises would be based in. 
That was the purpose of the law, Paul says. It wasn't to save us. That was never the purpose of the law. The law can never, ever save us. I love what Charles Spurgeon says. He says this, a handsaw is a good thing, but not to shave with. The law is a good thing, but not to have salvation through. It just isn't. It can teach. It can guide. It can keep us in check. But you know what it can't do? It can't save us. It can't give us life. It just simply can't do it. So sometimes what Paul is trying to help the uh, Judaizers understand as well as the Gentile Christians understand is the law has a purpose, but it's not the purpose that you think of it is. It isn't God's promises fulfilled. That is not the law. The promises were not pointing to the law at all, Paul says. And for us to understand this is that for us to be able to be on the path towards freedom, we have to understand it is not thinking that God's promises are the law. I mean, don't get me wrong. It would be easy to believe that. If you think about how the Ten Commandments were introduced, wow, they believed that there was an intermediary, an angel. That's why Paul mentions that in this passage. That came, I mean, talk about you know, Moses going up to Mount Sinai and he was gone for a long time. And he tells Aaron, Aaron, keep everyone in check while I'm gone. Keep everyone in check. I'm going to be with God for a while. And Aaron knows this. There were several times he got to go with Moses. Can you imagine that? Just you and God talking for days. You know, Moses, for all we know, he probably, I don't know if he ate. Don't know. Doesn't matter. I mean, sleep. I don't know. Doesn't matter. He was in God's presence, right? He's gone for a long time. And people are beginning to grumble. And they come to Aaron. They say, you know what? Moses has left us. We don't know what's happened to him. He's gone. You know what? We need to choose a new, a new leader for ourselves because Moses isn't coming back. And so Aaron, in his wisdom, says, okay, here's what we're going to do, gang. Give, give me all the gold earrings that you can find. Okay, let's gather them all up. All right. And what did he do? He fashioned an image, a golden calf, the very thing that he should never have done, he did. Moses now, of course, timing is everything, comes down out of the mountain now and he's holding two tablets, the law, and he sees the people of Israel dancing and celebrating around this golden calf. And what does Moses do with the law? He breaks them. As permanent as the law is, it isn't truly permanent. The law can be broken. And I love what Aaron says as to explain what was going on. Oh, Moses, I don't know what happened. We tossed this gold stuff in and out popped this calf. Golden calf. Really? Seriously? It doesn't matter how old we are. We can revert to five-year-old reasoning, can't we? doesn't matter how old or wise or educated or otherwise. Man, when it comes down to being caught red-handed, we just want to crawl underneath that blanket and hide. And we'll do anything we can to get out of trouble. And we do that. It's crazy. And we sometimes think of it this way. The Old Testament is just that. It's old. It's obsolete. No, it's not. It's not obsolete. And we sometimes think that was the Old Covenant. That's Paul's point. It's not the Old Covenant. It's instead a promise made. And guess what? The New Testament now is a promise fulfilled. That's what it is. So the way of freedom is this. 
does not come by thinking God's promises are the law, but by believing Jesus is God's promise to you and I. Let me say that again. The way of freedom does not come by thinking God's promises are the law, but rather by believing Jesus is God's promise to you and I, or to you and me. Listen to what Galatians says here, near the end of this passage this morning. Verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. We don't need the law to guide us anymore. We have Jesus. We don't need the law to keep us in check anymore. We have Jesus. We don't need the law to expose the fact that we are sinners. We have Jesus for all of that. And by the way, I don't know about you, but it's much better to have a living being in whom the promises are fulfilled than some inanimate object that can be easily broken over and over and over again. For you are all sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ and no longer the law. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants. Did you catch that? Abraham's descendants aren't those who follow the law. Abraham's descendants are those who have faith in Jesus Christ as Abraham had faith, not in the law, but in the coming Savior. Heirs according to promise and not the law. That's a beautiful thing. Talk about neither Jew nor Greek. Everyone can have freedom because of Jesus Christ. It came somewhat real for me in two things, two ways this morning. One is reading about and hearing about the conflict that's taking place in Israel once again. It's an old conflict. Can we just say that right now? It's a conflict that has been going on for thousands of years between Ishmael and Isaac. And do you know what God's will is in there? Two-state solution, fine, whatever. That's not, you can, you know what God's will is? We're all one under Jesus Christ. The walls have got to be torn down. This is enough. The walls have got, I mean, Paul gives that picture in Ephesians about the wall between Jew and Greek, between Jew and Gentile, being torn down and everyone under Jesus Christ becoming one. That is God's desire. It's, and He has left it up to us to make that decision because He will not force us He will not lord His power over us to try to make us do something we may not want to do. That is not a loving God. And so we will continue to have these battles. But thank goodness we have Jesus in which all of the promises of God are now fulfilled. And so here's the question this morning. How many promises are there? One. One. Well, it starts with one. There are more. There are more. There are, depending upon what you read, around 7,000 
487 promises in the Scriptures. 7,487 promises. You know what is so hard about a promise is that promises, at least between us as individuals and maybe in the way we relate to each other, can be so easily broken. Right? I mean, we, have, we, make, we may make promises all the time. You know what? I promise, honey, I'll fix the garbage disposal. We break it. Mom, Dad, I promise I'll clean my room today. We break it. Honey, I promise I'm going to take you on a wonderful trip come fall. Let me break it. Son, we're going to go on a fishing trip I've always wanted to take you on. We're going to do it. And we break it. How many times have we promised things, or more than that, how many times have been, things have been promised to us that have been broken? And because of that, we look at promises and we think, eh, there's not much there. I don't have much faith in it. I can understand why we look at something like this, the promise of Jesus, and we might think the same thing. 7,487 promises. I have here some reams of paper, 500 sheets each. I think I got about 5,000. Couldn't quite get to seven. We don't have that much paper at the church. <laughs> you know what's different about God's promises? Two things are different than about the promises you and I may make to each other. One is this. There's a number to them. Some say as high as 8,000 promises, but I'll stick with 7,487 promises. And here's the other thing. Every one of those promises are written down. They're in writing. When something's in writing, we can hold whoever wrote it accountable. When you write a check or sign a contract, you are putting in writing your very character and saying, I will do or I will back up whatever that document says. It's easy for us to break our little promises, but try to break these. I can't tear these. I can't tear these. Here are some of the promises that God has given us. Let me just read a couple of passages. Romans 10.9 That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death. But the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Second Peter 1.4 Through these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world on account of lust. And finally Romans 8.1-4 which perhaps is probably the greatest explanation of just what we had read. Therefore, there is now no condemnation at all for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. 
sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but rather according to the Spirit. That's who we have today. We don't have Jesus physically here with us, but do you know what we have? We have His Spirit. Dwells in each and every one of us who follow Jesus Christ to remind us. I've made promises. These promises are written down. They will be fulfilled. Trust me on this. You can trust me on this. It's going to happen. You know what? We already know that Jesus came. We already know that Jesus died for us. And now we're still hanging on a promise, aren't we? What's that promise now? He's coming back. End of Revelation. Read it. Jesus says it himself. I am coming back. I am coming back. And I love how John ends it. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. Come, Lord Jesus. We wait for the day when Jesus comes back. And even more, the things that he said he will do, a new heaven and a new earth will happen. That we will be free once and for all from sin, from death, from war, from strife, from anger, from tears, from heartache, all of those things which we are suffering now, we will be free from. How do we know? He wrote it down. And he wouldn't write anything down that he wasn't serious about fulfilling. We can trust in that promise. That's the way to freedom. That's the way to freedom. So let me say this. If there's any of us here today who are hanging on to this idea that, you know what, I can be free if I just simply follow the law. I understand. We have laws today. We stay out of jail. As long as we follow the laws that are of our country, we stay out of trouble, don't we? That's not how it works in God's kingdom. If anything, if we try to gain acceptance, salvation, life, and following the law, we will have just the opposite. Rather, we need to embrace and believe in Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of all the promises that Jesus was given. So if you are here today and you still have this tinge of, oh man, I really messed up, but you know what, God? Here's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to go out and I'm going to feed the poor this week because I know I just feel guilty about what I did. Oh Jesus, I'm so sorry for yelling at my children this morning. And, and uh, you know what? Instead, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give an extra offering this morning at church because you know what? That'll just, that, I, I know that it'll appease you. Stop doing it. It's not going to work. It's temporary because you're going to mess up again. Some of the best arguments happen on Sunday morning. I've been there. It's going to happen. Stop trying to do that. Rest. Believe in Jesus Christ because He is the fulfillment of everything that God has promised us. Confess. Be forgiven. And go on in that new life in Jesus. Stop trying to impress God. It's not going to work. Rest instead in the promises of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, you have made promises that you will keep. We know this. You are the promise keeper. And Jesus, we are so grateful that we do not have to live and try to find life in the law. But rather now, Jesus, we're no longer under the care of the law, but under your care. And you love us. You love us so much that you have died for us so we could be set free. 
free to live the life you want in you. Free from sin, free from death, free from all of those things, Jesus. I pray this morning we would embrace you because in you, Jesus, we know that all of the promises that God has made, the 7,000 plus that are in writing, are now fulfilled and rest in you, Jesus. Thank you for saving us. Thank you that we can call you our Lord and our Savior. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.